I'm not sure we need to have schools as、uh, the place to work. I think it's probably time to really think about no school. But the problem with our schools is that you don't really make a contribution. You comply with the system that selects you. Like you know, for 12 years in school, what contribution are students making? So you know, in education, we have this line called "I'll get you ready for the future." That's a big lie. You cannot get children ready for their future. Because the future is made by them. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Picking Podcast. I'm your host Benjamin Freud, and we are in partnership with Intrepid End News. Our guest today is Young Zhao. Young is a Foundation's Distinguished Professor in the School of Education with an appointment in the School of Business at the University of Kansas. He's also the Global Chair Professor of Education at East China Normal University, a Global Chair Professor at the University of Bath in the UK, and Professor. Fellow at the Mitchell Institute for Education Policy at Victoria University in Australia, he's the author of over a hundred articles, thirty books, including Research for Greatness, Personalizable Education for All Children, Counting What Counts, Reframing Education Outcomes, and many others. I hope you'll find today's conversation thought-provoking. We discuss many things, including bringing each child's uniqueness to the forefront, and we ask the question of whether the four C's or the six C's are just more of the same. Whether they actually hinder our ability to become unique, I'm also particularly interested in Young Zhao's thoughts on problem-based learning, which he calls entrepreneurial, product-oriented learning, which is more about finding problems.、He、uses the expression "we learn to solve problems, and we solve problems to learn." Really, a different view on what we hear out there on education, moving beyond student-centered learning, beyond learner-centered, and really thinking about contribution, which is also something that Young discusses. Again, check out our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design. Our podcast episodes are there,、uh, and check us out on Intrepid Ed. In the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Young Zhao. Well, hi! Thank you so much for being on our show. We're very excited to、uh, to have you.、Um, really interested in your in your views, and、uh, hopefully get you to uh, um, expand the conversation into directions、uh, that that we've been taking on the show. First question we'll ask is, who are you? What are your passions? And how do you try to make a difference? Well, thank you so much. It's、uh, it's such a great honor to get a chance to to chat with you early morning in Thailand, and it's almost evening here in、uh, Oregon in the U.S. Uh, I'm、uh, Yong Zhao. I now have actually two jobs. I'm a professor、um, in educational leadership at、uh, University of Melbourne in the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, and also my foundation distinguished professor at the School of Education and Human Sciences at University of Kansas.、Uh, my passion is、uh, is really trying to explore、uh, Different ways to meet the needs of young people, whoever they are. Different ways to meet the young people, because the more I, I stay in the field of education, the more I read,、uh, the more reforms I've seen. You know, it's、uh, it seems to be, the、um, the approach have、uh, not worked. That is, we you know in education, no matter where you are, we're always trying to think the same thing for all different children. That that's just people don't seem to escape from that. You know, we always have one curriculum, whether you're IB or AP,、uh, or you know you're in the UK, in the France, the US, wherever you go, people seem to think we can prescribe something for all children. Even the so-called 21st century thinkers, 
they always think about it, you know, all the four C's, five C's, eight C's, 10 C's, whatever C's they have, they say, everybody should have this. I'm not sure that's the right approach. So my passion is really trying to say, and also trying to encourage and promote uh, the idea of can we truly have personalized education for every child, you know, so that, that's really my, my passion. And, and I try to work with schools in different places to really come to thinking about a personalized education, a school of one. I want to get into a lot of these, uh, these questions, uh, particularly interested in the four C's, the 10 C's, as you mentioned, uh, and what that might look like and, and some of the mechanistic views. First question I'll ask after the, the intro, and this is one that we ask all our guests to, to try to get a common understanding. How do you define learning? That's a tricky one. Uh, uh, you know, the, you can define uh, learning by, um, as a process uh, through which you discover uh, new possibilities, you develop new habits, new behaviors, new thoughts, and there, uh, real learning should lead to some form of change in you, some form, a change in thinking, change in emotion, change in behavior. So that, that is learning. And learning always encounters uh, addressing new problems, new challenges. And so if you're repeating something, that's not learning. Dogs can do that. You know, I've always joked about that. If you're repeating, how do you get from New York to London? Uh, you, you can find a dog, eventually can learn how to do that. That's, that's not important. It's, it's, it's the new possibilities. You know, I used to explain learning to say, okay, so if you go to school from home, you drive every road. The first time may be learning. But after you're so familiar with, you can drink coffee, smoke a cigarette, driving your car, it's no learning. You're just repeating. And, but if the road gets cut off, you need to find a way to get there. Now there's, no, there's now some learning happening. I want to explore this idea of um, one curriculum for all and, and, and this idea of learning, if we, if we bring the two together. Because if learning is a personal experience and it happens at conscious and unconscious levels, and if we're driving and you find new ways, that just happens. And, and the success is really, did you get to your destination? But how do we work in, a, in, a, in an environment, in a school, where there is such tension between having to observe learning, having to document it, report on it, and at the same time, the very personal process that is learning, that really it just happens. And well, look, I succeeded. I, I got to where I was. How, how do we resolve those tension between the interior and the exterior? Well, the older I get, uh, the less constrained I am. I'm not sure we need to have schools as uh, the place to work. Uh, I think it's probably time to really think about no school, you know? It, it's, I, I really feel like today with technology, with the interactions, with all the social movement, uh, why do we have to control our kids? Uh, I mean, a school, yes, has to follow, like you said, documenting, assessing, following, complying you know, with all the curriculum, the requirements. But we need to really ask all educators, honestly and morally, to say, what are you teaching? What are you trying to make all children learn? Is that really valuable? I think we need to all ask ourselves that question. And we can all, everybody can debate. Yes, you know, you know if this is, this, uh, you know, my math is valuable, my history is valuable, my language is valuable. But really to each student, 
when they grow up, what are we teaching them? The curriculum, you know, we feel at least 30% of students, every curriculum, every school has the losers. We probably ultimately feel about 70% of students, you know, the ones who are not interested, the ones who cannot do it, the ones who do not have the opportunity to do this. Why do we have that? So every government and every organization, I think needs to answer that question. Why are we requiring all our students to master all of this? And is there any evidence to prove what we require our students to do will actually matter to them in the future? And this is something that really resonates with me. And one of the hashtags that I use is beyond school, as in let's just go beyond it and, and, and rewrite the narrative of school, which is actually something that's been around for just really a couple, couple hundred years maybe uh, in, in, in human history. I, I guess the question that, or, or, or what people would, would counter, uh, and I'm not taking this position, but this is what they would say, is that in a world where there's tensions, where there's fake news, uh, where there's misinformation, we need to be able to teach kids how to be critical thinkers and navigate uh, some of what's gonna be said on the internet. How, how do we counter it? And, and this would be critical thinking was one of the four C's that you questioned as well. Well, I used to um, make that argument myself. I said, oh yeah, everybody should be a critical thinker. But yeah, those are easy to say as slogans. But you think about it, a critical thinker who has deep knowledge in history or think about history is different from a critical thinker in engineering. And a person in engineering might be different from dancing. So, uh, you know, like an art critic would require critical thinking, but that critical thinking requires different set of cognitive skills and knowledge. So, so I have a lot of questions about the four C's or six C's, or, you know, you can, English is a language with a lot of C's. You, you, can, you can make up a lot of C's. And I, I just don't believe you, you should impose the same. Well, think about the four C's. Do you want students to be equally good at the four C's? Uh, which sounds like schools do. Yeah, you know, we got 25% of time for this. But what if someone who is really creative but not collaborative at all? You know, well, what do you think of that? that? That might be very useful because by taking that person to be collaborative, you might be reducing his creativity. You know, so I think we, we, we forget the modern society is built on by division of labor. That's something we, we, we it is it, the idea, the more you dive into the modern economy, it is about each person's contribution to other people and vice versa. So you need to be really great and unique in one domain. And then you convert your uniqueness and greatness into solutions to other people. So this goes beyond the so-called critical thinking. Because I think in education, we, we confuse the floor expectation with the ceiling expectation. Like kids come to your school and say, oh yeah, we gotta learn all this, but how much? You know, I agree like in Thailand or in, in any country, uh, citizens need to have the basic, very basic, very, very basic. Maybe. But that basic is decided by the government and by the public. But then that's the floor. That doesn't make you thrive in the economy. It doesn't help you become better, you know, necessarily. What do you need to do? 
The ceiling is uniqueness. So you have a common ground, but they have the ceiling. So when we talk about people succeed, it's the ceiling. People being able to make a living is the floor. So that's very different. But in education, you, you don't hear people talk about this. Say, yeah, everybody should do this. You know, like, for example, basic critical thinking, uh, that's different. You know, critical thinking, for example, about fake news. That's different. That's make a living. But then you want to discuss and debate fake news or fake story in history. That's very different, right? And you were talking about the, the French Revolution or French whatever you know, they were doing in, in Indochina during, before World War II. Think about, there can be a lot of fake stories there. There can be a lot of historical debate. Now that kind of critical thinking is so different from what's the fake news. So that's what I was thinking about. And, and that actually, in many ways, also, they show a contradiction in schools about reliability of sources and, and credibility and, and this idea that there's truth. When, when actually, you know, if we look at it, you know, and this is something we talk about quite a bit, on the quantum perspective, there is actually no truth because it's all about perspective. And so we can, we can handle each other, but there's such a value statement on, on, on the way that even critical thinking is presented that it's not critical thinking at all. It's, it's a hierarchization of sources and people. Well, that's why, you know, uh, sometimes uh, uh, you see uh, a lot of um, education theorists, I mean, a lot of even teachers, a lot of people uh, began to promote this idea of critical thinking. You are exactly right. I think uh, there is a Western view of how to reason, right? I mean, so so we, we lay out the different steps of reasoning, we lay the different steps. But that doesn't necessarily help you get a better, a better answer or have a better community. We need to question that piece as well, is to say, is that right? I mean, if ultimately we got 7 billion people, how do you help 7 billion people to become the same critical thinkers? You can't. So what, what you need to do is to really reserve that to individuals. I think individuals, when they read a lot more, of course, depends on what they read. And uh, when they interact with a lot of people, more people will soon develop wisdom. And that wisdom is not critical thinking as promoted by white type of people or two types of people, you know. Like in the US, people are promoting social emotional learning. But really what defines as emotionally healthy I mean, you've been to so many different countries and cultures, you know how we define emotional health is very culturally based. And so if you have one type, let's say the white middle-class emotional health imposed upon an Asian and an African-American and Hispanic, you might be wrong, but teachers have to judge your students based on that criteria. Say, well, is that right? So that's why I think you know, you know, it's a very interesting topic to think about. And that's absolutely makes complete sense. Uh, um, a more European view of the relationship in family is completely different from the view of relationship in family in, in Africa and, and in Japan and the social dynamics there. So having that target that we're shooting for doesn't make sense culturally or even personally or people's personal circumstances. Um, the, the other piece that I want to I want to pick up on is is this idea of critical thinking in terms of a way of creating and, and this is just something that's that's opening up in my mind just hearing you critical thinking as a way of promoting elitism and right or wrong oh I don't agree with you I'm a better critical thinker or you don't have critical thinking skills 
And, and in many ways, that feeds into this idea of meritocracy, right? Of, of we have, again, you know, we're educated, we're white liberal, and we're uh, uh, going to move forward in, 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 this, in this place. And, oh, we're educated and we're conservative, whatever it might mean. It, it draws lines in the sand. Um, it, it, we're really just pushing people to, to buy into this narrative of what success is based on cognitive um, criteria. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, meritocracy is, uh, is a really false concept. It's just you know, for other people, it can work. <laughs> I mean, I actually did analysis of the, uh, the meritocracy, and it was written by Young and Michael Young in the, in the UK was more like a describing a dystopia uh, condition of meritocracy. You know, first of all, there's no meritocracy. The merit is when people claim, oh, it's my work, my talent. No, you know, today in education, the merit is chosen by your family, your background, you know, your, your family still influence, you know, what test scores you get, which universities you go to and what jobs you get is, you know. The second of all, there's really no good measure of merit, merit. you know, that now you've, you have, a, you know, uh, you got IB, you major, you get seven sevens. Oh my God, you got married. You know, but that, that you know, right now, if you look at all this merit, it's also in one category. In essence, it's called IQ test in many ways. You know, the SATs, the SATs, the IBs, the PISA, they're all kind of highly correlated with the IQ, even though we know. IQ does not represent human talent. And we know that, you know, you look at sports, look at dancing, look at film, look at movies, look at theaters, look at uh, music and look at art. We got so many people who are equally highly, highly intelligent in other domains. We, we, so, so we have this meritocracy idea and schools trying to control students in that way, which naturally selects those who are better prepared. So, so I think, you know, when we talk about this idea of um, who is better than others, societies always choose. So I have come to the point to say, you know, I wrote a book about this called Rich for Greatness. That is, if you really give an education to each student and help that person develop his or her own strength, follow his, her own passion, they become great and passionate. Then they can convert their unique greatness into valuable solutions or valuable contributions to you and to the society. So that's where I think you know, we need to focus on is each and individual person's desire and talent and society. And so I'm really hoping in the future we can just simply create a transactional relationship between you and me. I have something offered to you. You have something offered to me. We'll build a large society of interdependence. And that's another word that starts with C, contribution. Uh, and that involves, if you follow passion, mind, heart, because of the passion the, that, that cannot not be linked, as well as the other, the contribution to society or to the other. That's that's a bit more of a, of a triangulation rather than keeping it... Um, up in the mind. Exactly. The, the idea of, um, I think we have finally come to the point to say, if you can make a contribution to others, to the world, you can succeed. Because if you are making a contribution, you will thrive. But the problem with our schools is that you don't really make a contribution. You comply with the system that selects you. 
it's like, you know, for 12 years in school, what contribution are students making? They're basically doubling the work of teachers. You know, I'll do your homework, you score my homework. Why, why do you do that? You know, are they making a genuine contribution that make them feel good? I mean, the student, no, we're not doing that. We're not encouraging students to make contributions. That's precisely the, the, the idea. So that's why I've been really advocating for people to, to start with a, what I call project-based learning. And not really, I, I, I call it entrepreneurial project-based learning, which I have termed as product-oriented learning. Product-oriented, that is you engage students in solving problems worth solving. You start by asking students to say, what kind of problems would you like to solve and why? And you need to ask why you and why now? And why is this problem worth solving? We, we can spend a lot of debating about that with students and then they learn to sharpen their eyes for problems. Then you start learning. You know, if you identify a problem, right now in our schools, the only problem is that I got to go to school. But, but really, if, if you think about in learning, if students really know why they are learning, that would be really fabulous, right? I mean, right now, I think a lot of students now, you know, when you're age five, age six, age seven, you got to go to school. Everybody's, every student is excited, actually. They want to go to school. They want to go to school. But as soon as they got there for three years and they're, Ah, this is not really my thing. I don't, I don't know. You know, they, they never get to do anything that's meaningful to them. They went into a prison that's designed for them. It's, um, it's and they, where they have to sit, where they have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, where they have to do all these things that I find absolutely uh, mind-blowing in a world where we want to promote creativity, but you don't even have the choice of, you know, getting a glass of water uh, be, before you're being told down. I don't know if you've seen that cartoon, I saw, I saw it was funny. It's like a bunch of uh, African kids are talking about, you know, the Americans, if they miss school for like five minutes, they did this, they, we got to make some donation to save those guys. You know, that's really interesting. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm also thinking about, about this idea. Really, you need, there needs maybe to be a, a, a community within the school or trying to work together and, and, and contribute to each other and support each other. And that's a completely different culture from, from the, the dualistic, I don't know, dualistic might not be the right word, but the teacher and the students, it has to be a sort of, we're all learning together. We're all going to work on this together. Is that something that you, you could see working forward or is that a bit naive or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I may think, you know, uh, community can be large and small. So, so I mean, I, I always like the idea called learning communities. Um, but uh, quite a lot of times, community has been too narrowly defined as your local community. Now we truly live in a global community. You know, if you get your students somehow to interact with students from other places to get a sense of a community online, a global, that will be meaningful. And definitely, you know, the relationship just between a teacher and a student that needs to be redefined. You know, is that uh, a student, maybe a teacher, maybe the bridge, maybe the connector to connect students to other places because every student has to locate somewhere physically. You, you have to do it. And building relationship with the local culture makes sense. But honestly, I would like to challenge that. It's not necessary. If you have children, for example, you know, I've been analyzing this for a long time to say, I live in, in, where I am. I have very little interactions with my neighbors, very little, you know, 
But every day I'm connecting with you in Thailand. I'm con- I, I'm teaching you know, people in Kansas and in Vancouver, in China and the UK, Australia. I have a my my community is fully global. It is truly global. You know, that's abstracted out of physical location. So you you cannot say I don't have a community. I have a huge community. Uh, but I have no connection with my local. I don't even go to local stores a lot. You know, my, my I go there. You know, once twice a year. My, my wife goes there, but she just goes there again. We pick things up and we're done with it. So the idea of a community needs to be redefined. Individuals may have different communities, and you have different communities. One person may have five communities, and they inter interact with each other. So people have different networks. I think that's something. We need to be smart about, but sometimes you know, community-based becomes the the local commune. You know, just I, I don't think that's what we want. And this is something else we've talked about too. With technology, soon enough, language won't be a problem, and you could have a kid in Russia who communicates with a kid in in Argentina about what they're doing on Minecraft through a, a translation bot, and and we've removed the barrier of language, and that's more stronger community. They already do that, right? I mean, they already do, yeah. That's a stronger tie than than you know two people who who live down the street who who might one you know not have anything in common at all. So so totally agree. Yeah, I mean, there's another point. If if you think about a per, if you do research about human uniqueness, there's a lot of people really who are quite unique. In, in your class, you may have a bunch of kids who have no interest, but they cannot find value for their talent locally. But they can connect globally. I mean, I was 10, 10, 15 years ago, I was writing my a book. Uh, you know, I was really discovering a lot of blind people are suddenly develop a new community. They get married. And because if you're the only blind person, you get discriminated against in, in your village or in your time. But now suddenly online, you know, it changes a lot of things. I don't think many people recognize that. If you're unique, you're different in a different place. The globe is your market. The globe is your community. I want to talk a little bit about PBL, project-based learning, or entrepreneurial project-based learning. Um, the, the the one of the biggest hurdles that that I've encountered is is people just don't know. They think project-based learning is finger painting in the wild west. How do we move towards? Um, I don't want to say opening eyes, but certainly showing the value or or, or the changing nature of 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 the world in such a way that they they accept or maybe are open to or, or God forbid, embrace project-based learning? Well, I mean, I, I, I started redefining project-based learning about 10 years ago. When I looked at many project-based learning projects, first of all, are not really driven by students. Uh, second of all, they're really fake. That is, yeah, it's, you know, looks like we're doing something interesting. Oh, let's grow some pumpkins so we can learn some. Some kids say, no, I'm not really interested. Why would I do that? You know, what do you want to teach me? I know this stuff. I know how things grow. So, so I, th- I think that's really, uh, you know, another thing is that project-based learning does not differentiate human talents. You know, like you grow up, everybody grows pumpkin, but you want people to learn to contribute. Like you said, you know, I have something, you have something. Like I said, true collaboration is called uh, outsourcing. You know, that is, uh, if you want to learn something, if, if you're good at something, contribute and get better. 
And if you're not good at something, get somebody else to do it for you. So that's true collaboration. And, and actually schools always discourage that. In like, if oh, we want you to write a biography, we want to write you a, we want to write a book review. Yeah, but you know, I can write book review, but, uh, but I'm really very good at doing the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, doing the, the illustration. So I should do illustration. Someone else should be writing about that. So, so that, that's really uh, about the idea. So I got to think about another reason is that project-based learning, they don't really start with a problem. They start with a problem teachers given the students. And, and also you, of course, have seen project-based learning too well aligned with the curriculum. It's just a fake way to get students to do something. So I've been really thinking a lot about that just to say, how do we get students to say, okay, I'm interested in, I'm, I'm so unhappy with the cafeteria being crowded for lunch. I hate that. I don't want to go. Okay, that's a great moment. I say, okay, what can you do about that? And then that's where you start learning, right? You, you start, students start saying, okay, yeah, you know, why is that a problem? How come it's a problem? Then what can we do? We can design maybe an app. Or maybe we can design lines. Maybe we can do this. We, you know, we can, students began to solve problems. So that's where you want authenticity to be in there. The authenticity has to come from driven by students. So that's, you know, uh, I know project-based learning can go to that direction, but a lot of project-based learning in schools are not driven by students, are not authentic, and did also come contain the student's uh, uh, view of learning. You know, say, oh yeah, you know, some project based, you did this and you can read this book. So I think authenticity and problem starting from the students. Another thing about problem is that some, you know, you've probably seen plenty of project based learning. They say, oh, let's start with the UN sustainability goals. I said, no, don't go that too, that's too big. You got to do something that makes sense to students. But of course, you know, if you get, um year seven or year eight students, they have been educated to learn about UN sustainability. They've never asked about what they care. They don't even know what to do. You know, so, 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 so that's right another issue. So what I would like to do to say, start with the students. And this opens up a whole new way of documenting the learning because then we could really talk about portfolios. And I don't mean like portfolios, like put up your favorite math test or your favorite uh, you know, book report, real portfolios of what they've done, how they've contributed. I have uh, cleaned up the water that really smelled in my neighborhood that I couldn't stand going for. And, and it becomes like a real, like a, like a resume, a CV that they can come with them. And I know exactly what you can do and what you've contributed to. What you said is so beautiful. You know, like in Thailand, if you walk around uh, Bangkok, you know, just, there's a lot of things children can do to make the city better. And that's learning. Clean the water, clean the smell. You know, they actually can do something. And then doing that is learning. I think in most cities have done, have, have got rid of that. I mean, have not engaged in students in thinking like that. You know, a lot of restaurants can be safer, can be more interesting and more secure. Children can do a lot. And that is learning. That's this, That relates to another problem is that we've always think, thought children as the incapable. So that's, that's our problem, right? So, so, so we always think, oh, parents, teachers got to help the kids, learn this thing. In, I came from a very remote village in China. When I was about second grade, I was helping my family because I could read. Everybody else cannot read. I was helping my father to find water buffaloes in different places. And I was bringing the news. 
when we did research in Vietnam and Thailand, actually Northern Thailand, we saw children bringing news, bringing new ways of growing rice to their home. Children change parents, children change homes, children change villages, not necessarily the other way around. Like today, I'm sure you, if you have children, they may be teaching you about new social media, new apps, new games. They may be, I learned a lot from my kids as immigrants, you know, they grew up in America, they teach me a lot of things. So I've been always, always thinking about children are capable, children are winning, let's not de disable them. You know, they can solve a lot of real problems with the knowledge we teach them. And this actually, when you th we think without going too deep down this rabbit hole, the concept of learning it isn't about imparting knowledge. It's about the, the, the oscillating dynamic relationship between us. We learn from each other at every point, the feedback we get, the emotion. Like we're learning from each other every second, every instant, if that's at all possible. And it's not just about imparting knowledge because I, I get stuff back from you, at least especially in a world where so people are so connected and and, and the kids are showing us what the world will be like. They're teaching us about the future because they are interacting in ways that we don't necessarily access in our everyday. Well, that's that's exactly right. That's why learning is, is what I call a, some change in you. You know, when we interact with you, there's some change in me, if that's the, the real thing. And if I solve the problem, I've developed new possibilities. It's that, but I think that there's another issue though with the, um, with our children so globally, you know, connected, if we allow them. Uh, but yet they've lost a sense of solving problems because we force them to do the math, to do the reading, to do the science, to do everything. And then just in case you need them in the future. So we got a lot of children mentally sick, a lot of children overly anxious, a lot of children have a loss of purpose and hope for the future. So, you know, in education, we have this line called, I'll get you ready for the future. That's a big lie. You cannot get children ready for their future because the future is made by them. You know, we do not create the future for them. When our children grow up, when you and I exit the scene about five, 10 years, it's their world, they're creating it. We get them ready to create a future, our retirement, by the way. And so, so the, this is, you, you cannot get them ready for their future. There's no their future. The future doesn't exist. The Nobody's pre-made a future. I'll, I'll drop a future waiting for you in five years. You get ready for that. You, you don't have that argument, right? But, but we pretend to have that. That is very dangerous. So, so it, it, that's the line you're talking about is, we learn to solve problems, we solve problems to learn. And you don't, you know, it's not so much how much you remember certain things, and, but we should not really downplay the idea about knowing something. I mean, I mean, knowledge actually is valuable if you're solving a problem. You can re rely on that knowledge at the moment, and you can forget about it. It doesn't matter, you have to remember it, but knowledge is actually valuable for you to think about different issues. And that's when you put knowledge into action. It gets value once you actually do something with it rather than just having it in your head. As we talk, I, I, I did, again, my dissertation on French colonial policymaking in Indochina in World War II, which I laugh because I always say, if you have an emergency about that, you could call me. But no one's ever called me about that. There's never been an emergency. It's nice to be in my head, but, but the, the value in itself doesn't come out because it's not put to use. You know, uh, 
what I think is, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm kind of near 60 you know, year old. I've been teaching for, God, over 35 years, you know, counting the days is that uh, uh, the, the problem is that people don't call you, people don't call me, you know, we get calls, we, I know, but, but is that the na- natural curiosity? Like, do you want to solve a problem? Do you want to know? You know, most of the uh, jobs the society had did not really have big problems. Like if you go to Amazon for fitting center, you go in there and say, well, your job is basically putting this 500 boxes, you know, into this, you know, so bang, you, you do it, you know, and you're not supposed to deviate from that, you know, assembly line jobs, it's not supposed to deviate, right? But then when you were a, um, a banker, a consultant, you had problems to solve. And I'm sure you caught people. I'm sure you talked to people. I'm sure you read. That's different, right? So I think that the, the, the challenge is to how do we get people to be problem-oriented? And, uh, you know, problem-oriented is challenging. And, and everybody actually runs into problems every day, you know. And then if, if you are a drinker, you buy beer, and they said, okay, where's the cheaper beer? Where's the better taste beer? You know, so but so that 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 is different, you know. And of course, I'm I'm not promoting alcohol, by the way, on, on the show. I'm just using that as a as an easy example to to think about. Listen, um, thank you so much for for uh, for for all your thoughts, and 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 I love this idea of having uniqueness be actually without a ceiling, right? We, we could just go on and go on until to the sky. Um, I'll ask you um, uh, just a couple more questions. One is. What books are you reading right now? Oh my God! I was, I'm actually reading. Uh, oh, oh, this is interesting. I'm reading. Um, it's called Introductory Readings in the Philosophy of of Science. So uh, it's a lot of philosophical readings about what makes science, and because I think this is the moment to think about science. This is very important time to think about what makes science. Because in education, we claim to have science, we have philosophy, we have history, but it's really, what is science? Doesn't mean science offers all the answers, but it means that we need to understand when people talk, claim about, you know, this belief is scientific, that belief is scientific. So I'm really kind of, you know, reviewing a lot of essays in that. And what have you come out thinking or how does that change your own thinking well i think it's uh sir Karl popper you know has the falsifiability of you know if a theory can be falsified it's one of the criteria to be science if you propose something can we check it you know can we try it out you know which by the way in education we never try to falsify anything you notice that we just promote four c's but why what's what's the evidence how are we going to know four systems work how are we going to know? You know, so is that science? You know, it's just, I think it's philosophy. It's not really science. It's, it can be religion. You know, to so say, yeah, we think forces work. It sounds like a good idea. Like, but really, how do you falsify that? You, you can't say it. Yeah, the same thing, Sir uh, Karl Popper also said Freud's theory cannot be falsified. Therefore, it's not science. Last question. Uh, what, what do you so? And you gave us a little bit of insights into it now. But what are other things that are that are in your minds? Things that you're you're planning to do? Projects that you're that you're tackling? Uh, things that you're thinking about? Um, maybe science and maybe beyond that. Well, I'm actually in the in the uh, in the process of um, of trying to challenge things. I I, wa- I want to be a person who can bring in evidence 
and philosophical approaches to remind the public and educators that we should be rethinking a lot of things. So I'm writing a book with uh, uh, the Dean of uh, School of Education at University of Kansas. We call this, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to challenge the accepted 20 or 30 ideas. You know, standardized testing as one example, uh, college readiness as another example. We're challenging that. Another thing, I'm actually working with another uh, professor who's trying to write a, a memoir. So it's very interesting, but, but I'm not writing my own memoir. I talk with the professor every week. And he's from America. So he's all Western, you know, he's retired. He's, he was also a former dean of a school of education too. So, but he also has traveled internationally. So we talk and to say, how, how does my story make sense? How does story doesn't make sense? And what can we learn? Because what, who, who cares about another story? You, you get seven, 7 billion people who can all tell their stories. But we want to say, okay, does the story mean anything? And does it mean anything for educators, for parents, for children? So we're really playing with ideas. Once you reach certain time, you've read so much research. You've read so many reports formed by governments, by everybody. You want to say, okay, what makes sense? So I think this is a time to call people to think, to rethink the possibilities and impossibilities, and to also reflect on us as human beings, what's a meaningful life. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you uh, pushing our thinking and opening us up to, uh, to different possibilities. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe, leave five stars. Uh, check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. Check us out on Intrepid Ed as well, uh, www.intrepidednews.com. There's a lot of uh, really thoughtful stuff there by some... Uh, innovative, progressive, and beyond progressive thinkers and educators. Um, we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. And in the meantime, until next time.